Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Gottesdienst crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today, we have back with us Carl Fabritius. Uh, he is now fully retired and, um, you know, just taking it in. He's just kicking back and relaxing and not really doing much, right, Carl? <laughs> well, I'm, you know, traveling a bit, seeing my <laughs> grandchildren a few more times, seeing my dad a little bit more, um, and going to the gym every day. Okay. <laughs> well, I guess it's never too so, late, right? Well, there's some hope for me yet. <laughs> well, the last time, we... although I don't, I have to admit, I don't want to prolong this life too much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very good. I, I, I'm with you on that. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Uh, so, the last time we spoke, um, we talked about the victory by head wound or the head crushing stories and and the themes that you get in the scriptures that way. In November, we. Uh, you took us through kind of tracing spears and javelins um, throughout the Old Testament and New Testament narratives to see what kind of fruit uh, could be born from you know looking at uh, this repetition of this this particular kind of weapon. Uh, so, what do you have for us today? What sort of themes uh, do we sometimes miss? Uh, just because we're reading the story for the millionth time and and not really paying attention to what's happening. I think that uh, there's an advantage just looking at the overall narrative, but taking stories that maybe aren't at the forefront all the time. When I first came out of seminary, I didn't really look at things this way, but I don't know about must have been about five or six years in. I looked, for example, at the Luke text where Jesus is in Nazareth, and he mentions Elijah and Elisha. And over the years, thinking more about those connections, uh, the leprosy stories in Luke that Jesus is, is involved in, particularly tying into Elisha, because you find three cases of leprosy in Elisha. Then you have water all over the Elisha narrative. And then you have the question of bread. There's famines, just like in the Elijah narrative. But uh, in particular, some interesting things that seem to come in groups of three in the Elijah narrative. And the story about the lepers, you know, people usually think about Naaman because that's the one Jesus mentions too. Right. Um, but I think the leprosy story in Second Kings 7 is more fun for me. I don't know if that's a good term, <laughs> but I tend to have always been more interested in it, even the Naaman. They are closely connected because you do have the fact that in both cases, it's, you know, you have lepers involved. They're sort of the outsiders. Yet in the one case, it's a, you know, the very rich foreigner. In the other case, it's these guys who just say, well, you know, we might as well go see if we can get the bread because we're going to die anyway, which is 
almost like what you have when uh, the woman who invites uh, Elijah in to stay. You know, they're going to, she says, I'm going to eat this food and die. You know, yeah. <laughs> she figures it's the end. She and her son are dead. It's not exactly the same language, but there is that sort of, you see these things connecting, surely, Elijah and Elisha, but also just things that should make us think about Jesus. I mean, with him, you get the widow of uh, Nain and the resurrection there. You get these, uh, you know, interesting stories along the way. But here in particular, in this Elisha narrative, you know, it's he's just before the um, the feeding of the lepers, not the feeding of the lepers, but the, the lepers being outside Samaria, you have that really interesting story where they capture all these Syrians who have come after <laughs> Elisha, and they take him back, and they feed them. I mean, because mm-hmm. the king thinks he should kill them all. And he says, no feed him. Well, that doesn't stop the Syrians from continuing to attack, you know. Uh, they just, they stop raiding for a while, but then they have the siege comes along. There's this never-ending thing. And so what happens is the king blames it all, of course, on Elisha. First you had Ben-Hadad mad at Elisha. Now you've got the king saying, it's all Elisha's fault. Mm-hmm. Rather than saying, here we have the consistency of the way the Lord acts. He protects his prophets, the sons of the prophets. You had the floating axe said he's protected them all along. And yet here now in the city, this famine is so great that they're selling donkey's heads for, what is it, 80 shekels? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you have the a cave of dove droppings is being sold for five shekels. People are eating dove dung, and it's not even that, because just as God had warned through the mouth of Moses that this would happen among the Israelites, the horrible thing would happen. So the king of Israel is then walking on the wall, and a woman asks him for help because it's happened that um, she made this deal. Hmm. A woman had said to her, give me your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. I mean, the unthinkable in Israel. You're eating, this is what the total pagans do. And yet, right. it's happening right there, right then, and it'll happen again because of their rejection of God's word. And the famine has come along and has been so great, and they are so focused on themselves that they eat their own children. And of course, the other woman broke the deal, and they didn't, you know, she's not letting um, that happen. She's hiding her son. So it also kind of reminds, th- does this remind you of another story? It does me, I'm thinking of a different one, slightly connected. The The whole thing of the woman coming to Solomon, yeah, remember? Dividing the... And Solomon's wisdom is shown there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A little bit different, I know, but you get this two sons thing again, and... Even, well, Jesus uses a story of two sons along the way as well. But here, the two sons, one hidden and one eaten, just horrific. And it's all Elisha's fault. Well, no, it's not. (laughs) It's the fault of those who can't even, I mean, already back in chapter 
isn't it chapter three, where the question had come up, do we have a prophet? And shouldn't they know Elisha's there? <laughs> well, somebody does tell them, yeah, we've got Elisha, send for him. Then you've got chapter five with Naaman. Naaman comes to town and the king is upset because surely it's a trap. Mm-hmm. And yet one of his servants says, well, you know, there's Elisha the prophet. So all along in the narrative, you think, shouldn't they know this? And yet what happens when Jesus comes? He's right in front of them doing all these things. The signs are all there. And mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. They they want to look for another prophet. Although, of course, at the end of the young man of Nain, you have that language about the fact that they say a great prophet has come. Mm-hmm. So th- there are these overlappings and points along the way that you realize how historical development of the pattern of who Jesus is is in these individual narratives. Um, they come after Elisha, and he's sitting inside and keeps the door locked on the guy that comes after him. Just as earlier, when they came after Elisha, he blinded them all. And you had the, you know, they couldn't get at him. So that the blinding of the individuals, the staying out, the door being shut against them, Mm-hmm. And the way that already you see that even in Jesus, then sort of to talk about our earlier thing, the, the judgment kind of language, the door being shut, being the wise and foolish virgins, mm-hmm. the foolish ones come and the door is shut. Um, but earlier it was used positively in the Elisha narrative. The shutting of the door is actually the you had one of the sons of the prophets died and his widow is there. And to deliver her, he says, shut the door, you and your sons, and then start pouring out uh, oil into the vessels. Mm-hmm. And fill up everyone you can while the door is shut. So there it was a judgment that was good and saved, whereas now you're shutting out the ones who come after mm-hmm. Elisha. And Elisha, again, is inside the house, and he's the one defended. Mm-hmm. Now, I've been going on about eating people and the, the eating, giving them bread and water before they sent them back home, all these feeding kind of images here. And then you get to this longer narrative about the four leprous men. It's like you've set it up with even the right before that you have, look, if the Lord would make the windows of heaven, would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Well, even the language of windows in heaven kind of makes you think back to the flood narrative mm. where the windows of heaven are opened. Yeah. Yeah, but for them, for the unbelief of Israel, there's just this, this couldn't happen. It's impossible. Sort of like, well, even the disciples, let's face it, he does the feeding of the 5,000. And then what do they start to worry about? Whether well, they're going to be fed. Yeah. <laughs> but... That was the way of Israel. Mm-hmm. Israel is getting the food, and still they wonder. The disciples are getting the food, and see him feed 5,000, and still they're going, oh, how are we going to feed these people when he feeds the 4,000? There's always right before their eyes, God does this. The fact that specifically Elisha is called the man of God again and again, mm-hmm. 
uh, very important because ultimately we know, well, we just heard it last week. Behold the man. Yeah. The one who really is the man of God, who is there for us and for our salvation. And so it comes to the narrative. And they're at the entrance of the gate and wondering, you know, everybody's died inside because they don't eat. We're out here. Why don't we just um, go over to the camp, surrender to the Syrians. They can kill us or they'll feed us maybe. Mm -hmm. But already when they get there, everybody's gone. Um, The Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses. There's that connecting theme that runs through Elijah and Elisha, the chariots and horsemen of Israel, the noise of great battle. Another time with um, David, too, you had the noise, the like an army in the top of the trees where they heard the noises, mm-hmm. and God delivers them. Or you could talk about the uh, Gideon narrative, right? where you also get barley, by the way, there. It's a great barley connection to... Um, to what's going on in this mess because the uh, the uh, barley there rolls down into the camp and it's a sign of the deliverance. You get the barley earlier and the feeding of the prophets here where the great miracle of Elisha feeds the prophets with a few loaves. I mean, was it? I'm just turning back because I can't remember the exact number of loaves now. <laughs> oh, yes, 20 loaves of barley bread. He's fed the... Uh, these people um, and gives it to them when the hundred men are done eating, there's still more left over. Mm-hmm. So th- this faithful feeding and always making us think in terms of the sacrament, even like the feeding of the 5,000 and 4,000 should point to the greater feeding or what you were talking about before we got on the, the you know, the bread of life narrative. Mm-hmm. Ultimately all these things tie together so nicely and these four leprous men we have to think of how much time is spent in Leviticus on these and on Exodus on these leprosy things you know all the specifics about what to deal with leprosy and the skin and the fact that it's almost like a mark of the body being dead and yet brought back to life again the restoration great resurrection kind of stuff here these four guys aren't going to get healed, but they live, they eat, they, you know, just like Naaman got healed earlier. Mm-hmm. These guys don't. Instead, these guys live like Gehazi, the servant. The servant. Notice there's three of these going on here. Mm-hmm. You had Naaman got cleansed. Gehazi goes behind the back and tries to get a reward. He lives with leprosy the rest of his life, even though he's going to be also sort of a whisperer in the king's ear and defends the Shunammite woman later to help her get her property back. Because the Shunammite was told by Elisha, leave the country. There's going to be a famine for seven years. I love the fact it's seven years to mm-hmm. another night tieback. But, uh, and then brings her back, um, sort of like even in the Ruth narrative where the The family went away into the Moabite country and comes back to Bethlehem, the house of bread, (laughs) and restored. And so the Shunammite gets restored as well. Um, 
things tying together in terms of even the ultimate feeding that has to happen and the restoration, the fact that we'll be given part of life in the resurrection and be given this uh, gift of the Blessed Supper. So we sit around until we die. We could do that, couldn't we? We could just sit around until we die, or we could realize, you know, there is a place we can go where we get life. Mm-hmm. Now, we might not be getting life in terms of um, being healed. Right. Yeah. I saw some stupid show last night where, of course, the focus was, if you're getting healed, of course, it's a blessing. Well, yeah, it's not that I'd argue it's not a blessing, but Christ cries out and says that you're supposed to take up the cross. You you know, the ultimate healing is going to be in the resurrection. You eat, you drink in this life, you endure, you have cancer, you have, you know, whatever the disease is, and then you're going to die, but then you finally live. live. And so these four guys are out there, and suddenly they're given all these riches. They're just, they can eat, there's clothes all over the place, changes of clothes too, part of the Naaman narrative as well. Right. And then uh, then you get, oh, what? and there is a third one with the changes of clothes in this narrative, but I can't, all of a sudden I'm blank about it. I'll think of it. Um <laughs> Then the, uh, so the Lord has driven the army out. They thought maybe the Hittites had come with the Egyptians and joined with the, you know, the people to overwhelm them. And uh, so they fled at twilight. I like it, you know, it's at twilight, the same time as the slaying of the lamb. And uh, then their tents, their horses, their donkeys, they just leave everything and flee. Mm-hmm. Now, they should kind of count themselves lucky, actually, because we know later what happens when there's a siege, and we should think of that siege, too, when we hear about this. That is, 186,000 are killed outside the city. Mm-hmm. So, better to run away. <laughs> so, the lepers come to the camp. There's They eat and drink right away. That's the first thing they do. Um, just like the enemies were let into the city, eat and drink. And now they eat and drink, Mm -hmm. just like the uh, eating and drinking that went on with the prophets earlier. Even the first miracle of Elisha involves the uh, making the well so that they can drink. Mm -hmm. The city is a great city. Uh, The other thing here, of course, is Jericho, is what that city is. And that reminds us of the importance of Jericho in the Gospel of Luke. See, I got back to Luke here, too. Mm Um, it, there's sort of that Jericho emphasis in Luke would remind us of Elijah and Elisha too, I would think. Um, in the days of Elijah, remember, there was the rebuilding of the walls. So that the curse was carried out for rebuilding those walls of Jericho. Um, so suddenly one of them, or anyway, they say to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news, and we remain silent. Mm-hmm. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. So in other words, it's still darkness, dark enough that nobody can really see what's going on. They bring light in the darkness to the town. They reveal the truth. They realize they need to speak the truth about what's going on out here. It reveal that there's all this food, there's all this clothing, there's all these goods just left behind for the people. 
And so they go running off to do that. To me, this is a nice tie-in to the ten lepers in, you know, the Luke narrative, because the one who is thankful and returns is a Samaritan. Here you've got these Samaritan lepers mm. outside who see what's going on, and they go, and in Thanksgiving, they let the people know, and they share in that. Now, these lepers are just going to disappear after this. Mm-hmm. I mean, they become sort of like that leper who comes to Jesus and is thankful. Yeah. He's just gone. We have no clue what happened to that guy. You know, the modern person says, hold it. What happened to that guy? Or they might be tempted. I've heard pastors do this. You've probably heard it too. They make up some story about the guy afterwards, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or they try to psychoanalyze him. You know, the guy was going through this kind of emotional, no, just stop it. <laughs> just tell us what actually happened. And in that case, he confesses that Jesus is, in fact, the one who is the source of all good. Here, by the their actions, these Samaritans are pointing to that as well, even though you never have a direct confession here, I admit, yet it's what they do supports what Elisha had said was going to happen. So they went to the Syrian camp. No one is there. Not a human sound. It's all just silent. Everything's intact. And so they cry out, and suddenly you have the storming of the gate. You know, the king gets up, and they go, and the servant of the king who had mocked Elisha is going to end up getting trampled in the streets. Um, so at first, of course, the king is sure it's a trap. Right. Just like he's sure that the Naaman thing was a trap. This is all about him. All he can do is think about his danger and his kingdom and his, he can't focus on the good of the people. Yeah. He can't so think of the fact that Elisha the prophet has spoken. Go ahead. Yeah, so is this kind of like projection that this is what's in their own hearts, this is how they would handle things, and so by way of projecting, project, projecting they are um, demonstrating what is in their own mindset and in their own hearts. They're revealing their own faith. Yeah. That is what they really believe. Yeah. It, you know, it's not that you get a direct confession. Even the fact the king reveals who he is, the serpent servant has really revealed that. You've also seen it really with the lepers. Their faith is really that the windows of heaven in a certain sense have been opened. Who else could have done this except the Lord driving away the enemy? And he's done it before in Gideon and other cases. You see where the Lord intervened in a battle drove people away so Mm -hmm. they know the stories but they don't always think about them now this is our problem too you know we live in this world we get so distracted by the immediate events of day-to-day life yeah that we don't really remember the story that is the narrative that is really about how god is always faithful Mm. which is why now this is a side trip here you know i'm guilty of that (laughs) Which is why we need to pray the Psalms so much. Because the Psalms pull us back (laughs) Mm -hmm. and say, hey, yeah, you're distracted like the psalmist was distracted. And you need to realize, hey, there are these other things going on. That is, the Lord has been faithful. 
you need to confess all the things he did for Israel in the wilderness. You need to talk about how he was active through Elisha, even though, of course, the northern kingdom is a, a place of total faithlessness, it seems almost. And yet, we heard in the days of Elijah, there were yet 7,000. So there were faithful out there. We tend to see stories about how the unfaithfulness brought the Lord's judgment. Everybody suffered. Notice they didn't all get, you know, happy face stickers mm-hmm. and have food in their house. They had to suffer through those times, and their faith had to center not on whether everything was smooth, but rather like we learn in the Psalms to pray, that in the midst of all these things, we cry out, how long, O Lord? <laughs> it seems the wicked win everything. Well, the wicked seemed to win everything in Israel, but they didn't. <laughs> And ultimately, all through that time, God was active in spite of all that went on. Yeah. So we need to take advantage of these times, too, to hear the word. There is a time when, as Isaiah warns and as Christ warns, when the word will be taken away. And I'm becoming a real downer, I suppose, but I look around us in the world at what's happening in our own nation. Mm-hmm. And... You have to be a little bit apocalyptic. Yeah. Not, uh, you know, at the same time, I don't have to spend all my sermon time talking about the end of the world, the end of the world, the end of the world. But you have to say, look at the signs. They certainly are there. Mm-hmm. And yet they've been there again and again. The, the thing that I think it's a sign of most importantly is there may come a day when the word is just taken away. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder. And, I wonder if that's the the point that you know our Lord will. I think even in the Gospel of Luke, where he says, "You see all these things happening," and but then he says, "But the believers, uh, they will stand up. They'll raise their heads because their redemption is drawing near. They'll read the signs differently. They'll understand that something yeah. else is at work. And instead of being like black pilled or doom and gloom about it." they'll uh, lift up their heads in rejoicing for that is the indication that their redemption is drawing near. Yeah. We don't have to run off to Montana and build a commune and (laughs) (laughs) hide ourselves, you know, or have some secret. I read some weird science fiction book where they like had these secret dugouts in the mountains, you know, that were there for this war that took place. And then they all came out afterwards and it was kind of a nice book, but it was kind of goofy. Yeah. Christianity is not that we don't need to go build our own fortresses Mm. and do all that. The fortress has to be the word. We just have to faithfully have the word to know these Elijah, Elisha narratives, to realize Jesus was preaching that day in Nazareth saying, look, the word may have been rare. The, Faith of the people was rare. You people in Nazareth are going to reject me. In fact, remember, they wanted to push him off the cliff that day. And he just walks through them. Elisha, Elijah, much the same. They went about their duties. They were constantly threatened by Ahab and Jezebel, by the uh, later events, Ben-Hadad coming after Elisha. Everything was And yet... They simply persisted in being faithful about the proclamation of the word. Mm-hmm. And the chariots and horsemen of Israel were always active. 
even today, the chariots and horsemen of Israel surround the church. I mean, to backtrack that narrative where, again, it was Gehazi has to have his eyes open to see the chariots and horsemen of Israel yeah. out there. You know, we, we don't see them. We need to be reminded that really the church is under the defense of Christ and his armies. But at the same time, in this world, all kinds of suffering and evil happens. Mm-hmm. It's we pray deliver us from evil. Yeah, and if we did, I like what if I could think of the exact thing Luther says something about if we didn't pray it, that can you imagine how much evil there would be? <laughs> yeah, Luther has a great way of doing that, like of saying you think it's bad. Just imagine if we weren't doing what <laughs> what God has commanded us to do in some of these. It would be even worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course, he has this great, this great trust and faith in 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 the Word of God and the promises of God. So, you know, he just he just takes it and goes, "Yeah, I, you know, I know it's bad, but can you imagine if <laughs> if it, how bad it would be if you didn't even have some Christians praying the Lord's Prayer?" <laughs> yeah, even the pagans should give thanks that we pray that way. <laughs> yeah, but. Uh... Yeah, that uncompromising faith in the Word mm-hmm. is what all of us need, not just pastors, not just exegetes. The entire church needs that. Mm-hmm. And you have to admit, you see that at times in some of your people who, you know, I don't use like to use this phrase, but they're sort of the, the common, simple ones, and yet they're simple in the sense that they simply trust what God says. Right. Their life is a total mess. Sometimes you just wonder, and yet they persist and they teach you, you got to realize the word of the Lord stands. Yeah. It is the most important thing. So all my, you know, I know I go here, there, and everywhere when I'm talking about these texts, but in a certain sense, that's what it's about. You could say, really, and I maybe say this too often because it's kind of a scare phrase, maybe the scriptures are inspired because <laughs> they're so woven together. Yeah. And all of history really centers in Christ, and everything is tied together. So that, you know, whether it's seeing Christ yet to come in Elijah, Elisha, or now looking back at them, and yet always seeing how Christ has been the one at the heart of everything. And now we gather in the church, in the divine service, with the reverent liturgy, and we treat it as a holy place, and we act reverently at the altar because the Holy Christ comes in our midst and he's our greater Elisha, greater Elijah. He's the man of God, the man who was crucified for us, the man who was raised again for our justification. He is coming to us, giving us exactly what we need and feeding us so that we can kind of raise up our heads like the four did and say, oh yeah, you know, maybe we should let everybody else know that this is the good stuff. Yeah, and it's just waiting here for us, and so they go to the city, and the Lord is faithful, and yet we know what happens. Mm-hmm. Many people, just you know, the COVID days, they went away from church; they haven't come back. Right, and uh, yet we continue to preach. We bump into them. You're in a small town, so you must bump into those people on a regular basis, like at the grocery store. Or yeah, when I go grocery like shopping. That. Uh, but yeah yeah well 
Yeah, you do bump into them and you, you know, you encourage them to start up again. And, and maybe this is, um, you know, not the way to handle it, but I, I'm just trying to say, look, just start again. Maybe it's small, but you've got to get out of that, that mindset of other people are going to kill you or you've got to stay away from these things that give you life to that is eternal life to extend this this particular life so some have you know slowly come back but mo- but a lot haven't and uh yeah. you know it's just it's going to be endless work so the so the but qu- in a sense that's the way it's always been it's always so. been that way to a per, uh, to a certain degree so I'm not quite sure how to ask this question without it sounding somewhat blasphemous. Um, <laughs> uh, and you'll understand why when I, when I ask it. So when we see these things happening in Luke's gospel and Jesus bringing up uh, Elijah and Elisha, and then he's interacting with lepers, is, is, is our Lord coming upon these examples and being reminded of the old testament texts and and employing those narratives from the old testament to demonstrate who he is and what he's about in this particular place and time or is he seeking to show himself in line with the prophets and seeking these things out himself does that make sense um can we say a little bit of both? I mean, I probably okay. You know, is he always reflecting on the text of the Old Testament? Yes. Mm-hmm. Is he in the flesh coming upon these things? And remember, the Gospels don't give us every last thing he did, right? So, particularly Luke has the interest. I think Luke's account is focusing on letting us know about Elijah and Elisha. Because Luke also gives us the fact that they watched him ascend into heaven like Elisha did, you know, watched the ascend into heaven of his mentor. So you get like the mantle being passed, the whole thing. Luke has this connection to that particular thing. And always, even in the days of Jesus, there were faithful people, even though, of course, after the ascension, there are just 120 people in that room. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like, is this it? Like there were 5,000 fed, there were 4,000 fed uh, after the feeding of the 5,000 in uh, John's gospel and the sermon Jesus gives. Of course, you have the, you know, Peter says, you know, you're kind of driving everybody away with this <laughs> stuff. <laughs> And he has to be confronted. Are you going to go too? Um, so, but to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So Jesus is confrontational with his own disciples, with everybody around him, and is constantly sort of saying, look, here I am. I'm everything you saw in the Old Testament and more. Mm-hmm. You were being prepared for this very moment. And still, it seems... But then, of course, in the work of his disciples, greater things are done. You have the 
baptisms, you have everything that takes place, um, even though the real work was all done by Jesus. Yeah. So with Elijah, you have certain things happen. In a certain sense, Elisha goes and doubles down on those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and the neglected story, of course, that I know I probably bring up too often, the whole thing of... So Elisha dies, and he's just in this grave that's open, and then they throw a dead body in on top of his bones, and the guy is raised from the dead. <laughs> so it's a greater thing. Just touching the bones leads to the resurrection. And there you have Jesus who goes into the tomb for us, who's raised from the dead. And now you've got the baptisms being joined to him in baptism, eating and drinking in the supper. And all this means that even though we're going to go in the grave, we'll be raised up. Mm-hmm. The, only good, the only thing you should note is, unlike that guy who would have had to die again, we won't die again right. once. Once we're raised up. Well, you even got the, the you know the whole crucifixion narrative, and then the, he can count all his bones, and then the, once yes. he dies, the graves open up. Also, there's an earthquake and the graves in Jerusalem. People are just <laughs> walking around. That had to be the most bizarre thing. <laughs> I, I know it had to have been bizarre. <clears throat> I mean, and it proves the lie that you know they didn't know. I mean. This had to have been a well-known thing. All of a sudden, this per I mean, if the if the graves <laughs> opened up, I mean, you'd you'd see all these people that had been dead. Yeah. Yeah. And still they didn't want anything to do with it. Yeah. Yeah, it no. It didn't fit to use modern language. It didn't fit their narrative. Yeah, it didn't fit their narrative. It's right. It's the narrative that really matters, the scriptures. It fits perfectly. Mm-hmm. Because both Elijah and Elisha raised people from the dead. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get that the Shunammite whole, story. You, you, it, it's in Luke too. You know the the rich man and Lazarus. You know, even if someone is raised from the dead, they will not believe. So you've, you you yeah. have two accounts of that. Uh, well, three, um, maybe more than that. Is Jairus's daughter? That's in Luke too. Also, Luke also, isn't it? Um, I believe so. Now you get me. You got the. I think that's right. Raising the widow at Nain. I think. I think Jairus's daughter is. So you get like Lazarus, the son of the widow at Nain, Jairus's daughter, and then all the people who are brought up after the crucifixion, and then Jesus himself, and they still do not believe. Yeah. I was just remembering another good Luke connection to Elijah and Elisha. In Luke, they celebrate the supper in an upper room. Mm-hmm. In Elijah, there's the upper room where he takes the young man mm-hmm. and raises him from the dead. And there's an upper room with the Shunammite woman mm-hmm. that she built this room for him. Both of those narratives with resurrection, life, instead of death, and uh, both closely connected to some eating narrative stuff. So right. you have then the Luke account. So the scriptures are just they're just too much fun at times. Because mm-hmm. one thing leads to another leads to another. And you start reflecting, and it is amazing. 
I did, one of the things I missed the most, being retired, Bible class. Yeah. Because you had, when you teach long enough with a group of people, they start to think like you do. Mm-hmm. Which is, maybe, they, maybe they shouldn't, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but at the same time, they, so you can ask questions and they'll think of things that you maybe never thought about. They'll say, well, what about this pastor? Mm-hmm. And because they'll learn that they can venture those guesses and stuff, they don't have to be afraid of saying things because mm-hmm. it's not like I'm going to shoot them dead, <laughs> right? So they just you know, are willing to voice these things, and sometimes you get some great ideas and great connections. Mm-hmm. It's also fun um, teaching Bible class, and and your people are reading on their own. And they come with questions like, you know, I was reading this and that reminded me of this. And they're like, oh, hey, that's great. Yeah, a, a similar yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. So. so is Jesus trying to demonstrate that he is a prophet like unto Elijah and Elisha? Or is he trying to demonstrate, I'm like that, but better? What is, what is the full point? Is he trying to say, what's he trying to say? He is the prophet, like Elijah and Elisha, but greater, mm-hmm. because he is the prophet Moses spoke about okay. in Deuteronomy. All these other prophets, of course, you know, people had to look at him and say, well, there's the man of God, but is that the man of God that is going to come, be the prophet that's the greatest prophet? Mm-hmm. And then that, and for some people, of course, there's still sort of, you know, the Jewish weird stuff about Elijah, you know, sort of focusing on that rather than saying, as Jesus says about John the Baptist, Elijah has come, but even with John the baptizer, Jesus was the greater Elijah. Mm-hmm. So, so there's always the fulfillment in Christ. So it, is there something going on then with that when John the Baptist sends his own disciples to ask if he is the coming one or do they look for another? Is he mimicking <laughs> these these people from the Old Testament on who would constantly question, is this the man of God? I kind of like that thought. I don't know if I've ever thought of it directly that way, but <clears throat> it certainly seems that he knows, he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the mm-hmm. world. So he knows who the guy is, and he's asking the important question that everybody has to be asking, are you the coming one? Mm-hmm. Because some people were asking it and thinking John was the coming one. Yeah. And he wasn't, because there's one who's, you know, greater not than worthy me. to undo the sandals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's the greater one. And so... Mm-hmm. Asking that question, now I have to think exactly where that comes. Well, it comes it's, after, it's in Matthew and, and Luke. Yeah, and I don't remember where it comes in Luke right now. In Matthew, it comes right after the parables of the kingdom, mm-hmm. which are, is an interesting place because then it, that concludes with the question, you know, who his family really is. Right. Right? I thought so it was that's in an life. interesting tie. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, now I've wandered about, and I can't think if there's anything I needed to come back to and and make sure I, I didn't mention the floating accent, which is always wonderful. Does, Jesus doesn't do anything like that. No, unless I was unless, back to Elisha. Yeah, but if he's um, 
although oh, he does walk on water, and is he the yeah. axe laid to the root? So is is he the is he the floating axe head? <laughs> no, I think that the 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 handle is the cross. Mm-hmm. We're the axe head that sinks. We have to be raised out of water and out of death and okay. out of sin and out of everything. So that when the cross hits the water, we're raised up in baptism out of all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which comes right, and it happens, of course, right after the whole Naaman. So you get Naaman and then the floating accent. Yeah. Well, the messengers from John the Baptist and Luke is right after the raising of the widow at Nain, uh, the son oh. of the widow at Nain. It's oh, uh, Luke go. 7, 18 and following. I like that. That would tie in well with the idea of, you know, is this the man of God, the real prophet? The, and for John to do that, just to lead all of us to see <clears throat> words in his mouth pointing us to that issue. Mm-hmm. So when you read the Bible, uh, I mean, are you looking for these things? Are you listening for these things? Are, how should we read so that we can begin making some of these connections ourselves. And at least, you know, just maybe it's not a connection, but maybe it is. So what are, what do you look for? What are you listening for? Um, that's a harder thing to say. You just read the scriptures <laughs> and you listen to them. And I'll admit, sometimes I'll miss something for a long time. And then, but you just ask questions about, all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. You know, seeing a reference to barley makes you think of the barley loaf, makes you ask questions about the importance of barley. I, oh, I know what I didn't even mention, which I found fascinating, was the reference to flour in, um, oh, trying to think. Where is that? Just a minute. I have a note about this, but I have to find it in my notes. Ah. Well, there was one in. Um... So, Second uh, Kings seven sixteen, yes. the so a sea so, of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seas of barley for a shekel. Now that comes up twice in seven, mm-hmm. so it, three times actually, sixteen, eighteen, and one. You have references to that. That particular reference to flour. Now there are different kinds of flour, and so when I was looking at this in preparation for this, it turns out that the flour referred to there, is often the term used for the sacrificial flower oh. in the sacrifices. Whereas the earlier, the reference to flower in the um, in First Kings, where Elijah is involved, is not a reference to that. It's just a totally different kind of flower. So it was interesting to note the sort of sacrificial possible connections there, too. Mm. So what... Wh- what would that indicate? That this was well. That this was. Uh, it it drive us back to see their false sacrifices and their false gods they were trusting in, mm-hmm. and the fact that you have one who is who has revealed himself in the sacrificial activities of the temple and desires the sacrifices of the people that they've totally neglected, and yet look, he provides for them the flour they need opening the windows of heaven and caring for them and calling them back to repent because the way of the sacrifices was a way of repentance, confessing your own 
sins and the need for forgiveness and redemption. Mm-hmm. That's the way I'd read it anyway. And yes, I could be wrong. This is always the, the thing about doing this. Mm-hmm. Eventually I might say, well, maybe not. Yeah. It's But you have to be willing to stick yourself out on the limb or whatever you want to say mm-hmm. and say, this is a possibility. Don't just take it as some, oh yeah, here's flour. Right. <laughs> or a reference to bread or a reference to meat. Try to look and see if, yeah, what the bread's about, what the meat's about, what the flour's about. And uh, know that the connections can turn up being nothing sometimes when you, sometimes you spend a bunch of time looking at some of this Hebrew and then you go, eh, maybe I wasted my time. <laughs> but the interesting thing is while you're while you're bumping around in that, you might discover something else entirely that you had no plan of looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like I said to you about looking at the coat of many colors. I mentioned that before we got on this call. Yeah. And noticing that it shows up only twice in the Old Testament and the interesting way it shows up and it leads you to make other connections in the narrative when you start looking at it. So mm-hmm. these are things that happen along the way. Sometimes you start down a pathway thinking you know what you're going to find, and instead you get led to another pathway. But that's the way the Bible works. It just, it really is a fascinating thing. And it's also that your faith is growing, and because more and more you realize it really is about Jesus yeah, and about his works and his ways. Mm-hmm. And it's not accidental. It's not like, it's it's well Plan the the craftsmanship of these books, you know, of the Old Testament, is very important. I didn't even mention you also get a reference to Dothan here in the midst of the Elisha narrative. You know why Dothan's important? I can't remember off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> it goes back to the Joseph narrative where his brothers were off to, well, off at. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. And then it's you know, so you get. References to cities at times matter. Gilgal is always important because it's the place where, you know, the hill of foreskins and the rolling back of the, um, the reproach yeah. of Egypt. So there's all the there's the city names sometimes are important. I mentioned Jericho and you know how Jericho seems to be really important in Luke's gospel. I mean, they come to Jericho before going to Jerusalem. Um, and people could say, well, you know, it's just on the road. Well, yeah, but <laughs> it's more than that. We should think of what happened at Jericho. Oh, mm-hmm. and in Luke, of course, you've got the story of the Good Samaritan who's yeah. on the road going down. And so he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. So you got these, the city names matter. They're not just accidental, just like all these things matter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, things should not just be considered accidents or anything like that. This is the Holy Spirit at work. Mm-hmm. And there's always some more to learn and to pick up on. And it doesn't matter how many years you go at it. You keep, you can take, teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> Yes, you can. Yes, you can. So, this old dog's still learning a few things. <laughs> I suppose 
One of the day, one of these days, you'll call me up and I'll say, "Who are you?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully not too soon, so uh, that old dog can teach us new dogs some tricks too. So, well, just persist in the scriptures. That's really all it is. They're they're there really for your good, mm-hmm. and you know sometimes we get sidetracked in other things and life goes on because you're no different than your members mm-hmm. and I was no different than my members and we just get deep into the things of the world. Instead of deep into the things of God. Now say, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We could, I suppose at this point, you know, we could now say, well, let's try to figure out what the rest of the days of Elisha were like. <laughs> <laughs> But I don't want to do that. I could, there's too much fun just with the little things we know about him. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Well, thank you, Carl, for your time. I look forward to chatting with you more, particularly about you know some of these things, these tricks that this old, that you, the old dog, have learned uh, uh, about reading the scriptures ho- kind of holistically. And uh, so I appreciate your time and your insight. Well, thanks a lot for having me, Jason. All right, you take care. You too.